to really think about what it means to be the, ki- the type of people, the type of church that learns to love God well. And, and an interesting side note, I want to kind of share with you how this message got put on my heart this week. So uh, when I was in seminary, I'll never forget this, I had lots of professors, and I had one in particular that was a contrarian to all the other ones I had. He was my Greek professor. And what was interesting was, in most classes, especially if you've taken a liberal arts degree before, you know, you tend to write a lot of papers, and they're very, very long. Uh, the bare minimum when I was in school was like 30 pages. That was like a starting point for a paper. That is a lot. Like, and just so you get a feel for uh, this, an average message that I deliver to you each week is eight pages. That's how much 35 to 40 minutes. Some of you are saying, man, it feels like 58 minutes each week. But typically, it's anywhere from 30 to 40 minutes right in that ballpark. That's eight to nine pages of typed text. <clears throat> so those classes were always challenging to write long papers, but you get into the rhythm of it after a while and you learn how to do it. On the contrary, I had a Greek professor who had a very different philosophy, and he would only permit us to write 10-page papers. And initially, we all thought this was great because it was like a lot shorter of a paper, but what we learned was that it was actually much harder to write a 10-page paper than it was to write a 30- or 40-page paper because you had to be so succinct and pointed in what you said. In other words, there was no space to deviate a page or two. You had to figure out what the most important things to say were, make your case, make your argument, and then actually write the paper. And so that has sort of followed me throughout my years. Uh, What I simply mean is that there are lots of times where I'm sitting and thinking about what I should write about, and seldom on on a week, I have like typically eight to 10 things that I would like to talk about. It's usually in the construct of a series, so I'm you know, working this together, but there's usually way more to say than what I have time to say permits on a Sunday. And so last week I was really thinking about this. I was going to go in a different direction, and Monday morning of this prior week, I got up and just asked God to give me some clarity in what to say, because I had a lot of messages I wanted to share with you today. And true to form, uh, the devotional tool I use actually had a verse in it, and I read it, and it was a verse from Deuteronomy 6, verses four through six. It was this message I'm about to give you, which was one of the four or five that I really wanted to share with you. And I took that, you may take this for what it's worth, but I thought it was worth a whole lot, that after immediately praying that, God sent a verse into my inbox. And while we won't look at Deuteronomy, we're going to look at the equivalent of Deuteronomy in the book of Matthew, because Jesus is quoting Deuteronomy. And I asked God, like, what, what is it if I had one thing that I could say to us on an anniversary Sunday, where we celebrate God's goodness to us, what is the one thing that we should take away? And simply put, if you understand what Jesus is saying here, because the Pharisees were asking him the same question, like what's the most important thing we as a follower of God can can do? We can love God well. That's what it is. And that's what I want to talk to you about today. Our past, our present, and our future is rooted in this idea. So today is a special day as it marks another milestone in the way God has blessed us. And throughout the calendar year, we celebrate certain things. Easter, obviously the resurrection. Christmas, Christ's coming. We have other waypoints. Uh, in the fall, we'll have our annual chili cook-off. We've moved that to the fall because it's not 105 degrees and it's after hurricane season. That was an intentional decision on our events team this year. We've, we do these things throughout the year to be able to raise Ebenezer's to God. And if you don't know what an Ebenezer is, an Ebenezer is a stone erected to remember God, something he's done in our lives. This is the time of the year where we remember the fact that Seven years ago in this room, there was nothing going on but like Marvel Avengers. That's all that was happening in this place. And now each week we occupy a whole wing of the movie theater and worship God and then go into our respective communities and community groups and love him. It's an amazing thing. Yeah, I agree. I think that's worth a praise the Lord. But as is customary, only three of you ever praise the Lord in here. So you can get happy, you can get jiggy, do whatever you do. You can just, you know, be happy. It's all right. All right. 
seriously. All right, so, so seven years on October 10th this week. And what I want to do today is just share a little bit about where we've been uh, and why we're where we're at. And the main reason we believe God has been good to us is a simple but a profound one. And it revolves around the word love, which you will know we spent a substantial amount of time talking about last week. Last week we talked about the differences between a life in the Christian faith defined by judgment, the unhealthy form of it, and a life that is defined by the truth and the grace of Jesus. There is a root system that fuels each one of those. Uh, judgment is typically rooted in a self-righteous attitude. It is a, as a person or a heart that says, look at how great I am, and because of that, I can dole out judgment on the world. Worship me. Where a life that truly understands the nature of who Jesus is recognizes that there is, there is not enough goodness in us to make a statement like that. We are truly dependent on God's righteousness and God's goodness to make us who we are. And so we spent an ample amount of time talking about the contrast between judgment and love. And today we're going to take this one step further talking about love. And I hope that today that you'll see our past blessing and future hope is in this verse. It's in this truth. It is dependent on us remembering, according to Revelation, our first love. It's dependent on us continuing to experience Jesus' love and to deeply desire to show it to other people, those who are in our lives. So today we talk about the central nature of love in our lives and the central nature of love in our church family. And this leads me to the first truth that I want to share with you this morning. There are two that we will look at. One is very theological. The second is incredibly practical. In other words, my hope today is that the reality of who God is, God's revelation of himself, will shape the way we live. First thing I want to share with you. Jesus says, and we see this in Matthew. Matthew is, uh, is quoting uh, Moses in Deuteronomy. This is a truth that spans both, te- both testaments. Jesus says the foundation of our faith, the foundation of our pursuit of God, is built on a deep understanding of what it means to love well. There's no getting around this. Now, in Jesus' world, much like ours today, there was a great deal of confusion about what was meant by love. Love is a hot-button word today, much like judgment was last week. There are words in our culture that have incredibly broad and diverse meanings. And what is a challenge for us, as those who are trying to follow God, is that we might look at these words and we have a, a very clear understanding of what it means in Scripture. We have a very clear understanding of how Jesus explains these concepts. And then we have a contrarian view in the culture that we live in. And love is one of those words that I think is in that space today. So on the surface level in Matthew, kind of storying up here, you have this interesting debate. It's a debate that's still going on today. You have the Pharisees questioning Jesus. And they say, hey, what's the greatest commandment? They want to know what the role of love is in the Christian faith. What is the most important thing? You understand the Pharisee, they were deeply concerned with keeping God's law, the Ten Commandments in particular. And they approach Jesus and they want to know out of all the things God has said, what's the one thing that that matters more than any other thing? And we would say, generally speaking, if you don't know the context of the Pharisees and their hatred for Jesus, that is actually a pretty fair question. It's a question we're going to try to address today. But what I want to do is give you a little history here. That question reflects a really heated first century debate, much like the one today. Talk about religion and faith and politics, and the word love is slapped all through it. It is a debate today about what it means to love well. And in this case, they're asking how to prioritize the commandments of God. And so this, from the surface, looks like a general dialogue between some religious leaders and Jesus. But what this really is, is a business-as-usual situation for Christ, where the Pharisees are trying to get him in trouble. They're trying to get him to say something that is both religiously and culturally inappropriate. That's what I said last week about Twitter. Tweet something about love today on Twitter and watch what happens. 
you'll get a couple of thumbs up and likes, and then you'll get like the vitriol, like the Molotov cocktails will come in. That's what typically happens on Twitter. It is the new form of, of judgment in our world today. At least it's a platform used for it. That's what I said last week. It's a, perf- a personified tool. Twitter has spoken. Who is Twitter? They don't pay you. doesn't pay rent in my home, right? Okay. Now, Jesus being Jesus uses this. He takes kind of an ill motive, and he uses it to create something very powerful, a teachable moment. He takes this question, and he, he uses it to share the most important truth of, of the faith. And he says, what God wants most from us, what he wants most from the people who claim to love him, his greatest commandment, using it in the Pharisees' terms, is that we never forget the first love of our life. We never forget that for the Christian, above all else, our devotions, our affections, this, the core of who we are, our ethos is meant to love God well. And first, this is the problem we're addressing in Revelation. So in Revelation 2-4, you know, fast-forwarding several books of the Bible, you've got Jesus saying this in Matthew. He's, he's just reteaching something that's been said all throughout the New Testament and will continue to be said in the New Testament. And then you get to Revelation, which is, you know, sort of the end of all things in the, in the Bible. And you've got this interesting verse right there at the beginning before Revelation teaches what Revelation teaches, how it's all going to wrap up the world. And the problem the churches are facing, the problem the people of God are facing in that verse, in that chapter, is this right here. It is held against them, John says, that they have forgotten their first love. That's the problem. And if you read on, which we won't have time to do today, I'll just give you the general synopsis. If you read on, what's happened is there's a lot of religious stuff going on. There's a lot of church stuff going on, a lot of Christian stuff going on. But what's missing in the midst of all that stuff is the first love. They, the, the aesthetic of Christianity is there, but the root of why Christianity matters in our lives is not. And according to the scripture, that is held against them. What that simply means is the, the, the mark has been missed. The point of all this is to do what we do, which we'll get to here in a moment, out of a devout and profound love for Jesus. It's not to do what we do and not have any love for Jesus. Those are two different faiths. Just using what we did last week, one will lead to righteousness, one will lead to an an internal arrogance, the other will lead to a deep and profound humility that causes you to genuinely experience the joy and the peace and the hope of Christ. That's the problem in Revelation. And it's interesting that we're looking at the solution in Matthew But at the end of what happens, in the Bible anyways, we see that there's this issue. There's a disconnect with the command of Jesus and the actions of his people. And so it's out of this deep love that we are supposed to learn to love others. And in this verse, Jesus says the whole Christian faith hangs on us, uh, on this. It hangs on us properly knowing with our head, applying to our hearts, and living out with our hands this truth. In fact, verse 40, which we did not read today in Matthew, says... The prophet and the law and the commandments, all the big stuff, all the big stuff hangs on this statement. So love and our understanding of love deeply matters for every relationship we have. And our first love matters above all of our other relationships because our love for Jesus deeply shapes the relationships we have in our life. It is the rudder that defines how we love others. And so before we go any further, it's important to spend some time talking about what Jesus means by love. This is crucial to our teaching. It is crucial to our lives in Christ and to the future of our church. Because in our culture, love is a serious word often used in incredibly diverse and flippant ways. Let me just give you the, a dictionary uh, version of this. It'll be behind me. Here's what, if you go to Webster's Dictionary or any other major English dictionary, here is what you're going to find behind the word love, okay, or next to the word love. In English, love is both noun and verb, all right? 
And it's, it's kind of proves the point. I'll just read it to you. Love. Let's begin with a profoundly tender affection for another person. Okay? That sounds sort of lovey. It, it sort of talks about love as being somewhat of almost purely emotional at this point. And then it sort of qualifies that even more deeply. A feeling now. We're describing love as a feeling, which it certainly can be. A feeling of warm personal attachment or deep affection as for a parent, child, or friend. We talked a lot about child rearing last week, and we used the word love to explain that. That's legitimate, right? Now, here's where the point I'm trying to make really takes root. We go off the reservation here. It's passion or desire, right? More emotive. It's a concern for the well-being of others. It's used to describe one's liking of something, such as she loves pizza. And my favorite is a score of zero or nothing in tennis, okay? Love in the English language. A deep, profound affection for someone in your life and 15 to zero in tennis. That's what love says in the English language. In English, we'll use this word to describe how we feel about food, our affection for a dog, the way we care about our mothers, athletics. The distinction between those types of love is it's massive and it is assumed. This is where we get fuzzy. It is assumed that the context of the way we use that word will qualify what we mean by it. So like we would hope that somebody loves a parent or a child more than they love a dog. That is not always the case. Not that we don't love our dogs. I have one, but I love my kids more than my dog. That's, I think, good and right. If you're under 30, you're like, no way, man. That is not accurate at all. My dog is my kid. And I'm telling you, your dog is not your kid. That's not the way that works. Right? We hope that that's the case. Very broad use of the word. Now, here's where we refine this, because this word actually has a proper meaning in the, in, in the Christian vocabulary. Contrary to this, Jesus says, the Christian should have a, a very distinct type of love, one that is distinguishable from the myriad of definitions we just read. One that is, I'm not even saying any of that is wrong. I'm just saying it's got to be less scattered and less convoluted. We can't use a pop culture understanding of love to shape the way Jesus calls us to, to show affection to our Father in heaven. And to help us sort this out, he gives us Matthew. Matthew 22, he gives us his teaching. And it is there that Jesus tells us, there truly are two first love, this is the analogy I want to use, there are two first love relationships that must be present in our lives if we want to follow God well. They are the loves, if you will, that define all love. The first is the desire to love God with all of your heart, your soul, and your mind. That's what I read Monday in my devotional time. And whenever we talk about being a person who loves Jesus, and a church is just simply a collection of people who love Jesus. So what this means is this is a conversation about our church. But when I say our church, what I mean is you and me. We have to understand what is meant by loving God like this. Because in light of our culture's diverse use of the word, it is easy to hear Jesus' words and see our love for God as that dictionary definition. We can see it as a feeling. We can see it as something that comes and goes. We can see it as a, an unbridled passion we have on Tuesday, and then we have no concern for it on Wednesday. It can be very trivial. We can speak of loving God while speak of loving a certain type of food. And all of this really convolutes the understanding of what Jesus wants us to believe with our hearts when we proclaim a love for God. It can lead us to these crazy places in our faith where we compartmentalize areas of our faith. We love God in this area, but not that area. Or we don't love God at all. Whatever it looks like, we cannot have a scattered definition. We have to have a Jesus definition. And while it has always been commonplace for people to live like that, it's a natural struggle, some that is more extreme for others than some. 
This is not what Jesus is saying in Matthew, nor was it how his audience would have understood his words. If you are a Bible scholar, you know the book of Matthew is written to Jewish people. It is a book, unlike the other Gospels, they all have their own flavor. But this book is really written to say, listen, listen Jewish people, I want you to know who your king is. That's why it's steeped in this type of language. It celebrates the kingship of who Christ is. And so here you have this Jewish audience listening to Jesus speak about the kingship of Christ, which is, as you know, a pretty strong definition, a word that describes God the Father in the Old Testament. Direct connection there. The audience would have understood this in a very particular way. The Jewish understanding of loving God with all of your heart, your soul, and your mind meant loving God with your whole being, with every fiber of who you are. It is a love that is highly focused. It is a love that communicates the the whole person is present in God's presence. Your heart, your mind, and your emotions. And in all of those areas, you are trying to fully devote yourself to God. Your love for him and your service to him. (coughs) This fully devoted kind of love is the foundation for a proper relationship with God. It's the type of love... It's the type of love that God has for us. I'm not crying, just know that right now. And while there is much grace from God, when we don't hit this mark, um, what happens here is we start seeing the fabric of our our relationship break down with God. Now, I want to say something in connection to this, meaning this is a command we're given, and it is a command that we don't always do perfectly. And this is why understanding grace is so important, what we spoke about last week. This is something we're meant to strive for. And even with the best intentions, we will never fully love God perfectly. It's not, we're not capable of that because we still struggle with the sinful nature. But what I am saying here is that is if we get this wrong, but we choose to stop fighting this battle, if we start or stop saying, hey God, I recognize you say, listen, love me well, and that's no longer a priority in our life, then what happens is our love for Jesus becomes somewhat of a hobby. It gets casual. And while we are permitted to reference Jesus as friend, that is very casual, we should never forget the fact that he is also our king. There should be a balance in those two things. We should love deeply and respect infinitely the person of Jesus. If we miss that, the rest of our faith is off-center, particularly in what Jesus says about the next kind of love, which is how we're going to close today. The first love is rooted in you understanding who you are before God and, and you having a profound love for God. The second love is a natural outflow of the first. You cannot do what I'm about to say with authenticity if you do not have the first love that Jesus speaks about here in your life. It is a desire to love your neighbor as yourself. Remember, love, I say this all the time, love and the promises of Jesus in the scripture, they do not have a period after them. There is a comma after them. When God says, I love you, there's a comma. And what God expects is that you now take that love and show it to others. When God says, like he says in Mark, my son has come to serve you, comma, now serve others. I'm here to show you grace, comma, now show it to others. There's never a period at the end of the promise of God. There's a comma. And that comma, the continuation of that promise is us. It is taking that truth and living it out in a way that shows the world we not only believe that, but have experienced it. The second love is directly connected to the first. And it is an indicator of how deeply you know God. It's a bone-sinew connection. Inseparable, what Jesus says here. Once you truly begin to love God, once you believe God loves you so sacrificially, so generously, to the point of giving his life for you on the cross, it should create, compel, a newfound compassion for people and a desire to see others restored to God in the same way. And much like the rest of the promises of God in the scripture, it is fair to say 
that the level of our love for God is directly validated by how much we love others. This is how you can understand a promise in your life and how deeply you believe it. Your external actions really indicate your internal beliefs, always. Always. It's an external gauge that reveals an internal heart attitude. Why? Well, the way you love people in your life is a direct reflection of how deeply you understand Christ's love in your own life. Remember, meant to be experienced first and then displayed to others. Let me give you some examples of this, of the internal-external. Let's speak about grace for a moment since we were there last week. If you freely receive God's grace, which is something we believe God promises us, it is a cost to God, but it is free to us. Yet we cannot be gracious to other people. It really does call into question whether or not we understand grace. If you are a person who has proclaimed the forgiveness of sin, you have recognized Christ's sacrificial generosity in your life on the cross, but you have an incredibly hard time. Maybe you can't forgive others. Maybe being generous with your own life the way Jesus was for you, for me, that's very difficult or impossible. It really calls into question how deeply we understand sacrifice, forgiveness, and generosity. Now, if we, plural, as a church family, if we proclaim a profound restorative love, right? We believe God has restored us to him through Jesus, and we believe this, and we teach it and talk about it, yet we do not seek to pour that love into the lives of others, then it could signify that we really don't understand God's love, at least to the way he wants us to, to the degree he wants us to. And it's sort of easy to see why Jesus says in verse 40, everything, the whole history of God's work in the world, his written word and his future work, it hangs on these two commandments. You can take the whole of God's work in the world and collapse it into these two statements. That's what Jesus says here. Love my father and love your neighbor. That is some rich stuff. Now, if what Jesus says about our individual love for God and neighbor is true, and we believe it is, then both logically and theologically, the Christian church, us, his people, should be set apart. We're built on the same foundation of that love. Because we are a group of people. This is what scripture teaches about the church. We have been set apart in God's grace to experience and lead others to his love. We are in the Greek, the ecclesia, the called out ones. Literally, the definition of church, the called out ones. And God has called us out to be this, to experience this and be this. And that's why this idea of loving God and others well is so central to our faith. So central, we named our church after it, Restoration. And our vision statement clearly says restoration exists to foster two primary relationships. The first is God's relationship with people. And the second is our people's relationships with others. That is why we're here. Our desire each week in this room, outside of this room, in community groups, at coffee tables, wherever we go, we are trying to help people know how much God cares for them, know how much God loves them, and we want them to reciprocate that love to other people. That is the essence of a disciple. And I'm happy to say We've got a good track record of this. We really do. I'm not saying it's perfect. And I'm not saying we don't have a lot of room to grow because we do. And I'm not saying we don't have thoughts for the future. I'm saying there is a record of fidelity here. I say this anytime I give a talk like this. What we hear most about what people like about our family is typically our family. That's a pretty encouraging thing. There is a perceived in a sense love. It is why I believe God has blessed us Blessing does not mean we are without challenge. We have no shortage of them here. But it is also why I believe God wants to use us, to continue to use us. 
And so that said, this is not, I, I say this anytime we talk about a kind of an assessment, and that's what we're doing here. Revelation is a leveled assessment. The people of God are being told that, hey, you're without the first love. That's not what I'm saying here. What I want to do is remind us that we can be without the first love. It's possible. And in some cases, probable, according to Revelation. But where I want to end today, where I want to wrap up is in the Matthew verse. It's a declaration for us to be very mindful of how we, get to, how we never get to the place where we lose the first love. It's by recognizing this profound love we should have for Christ. And so it is my prayer that we would see a deep passion for this kind of love. That where opportunities present themselves, whether they are formally as a church or individually in your neighborhood, that we would respond with the love, the same love God has shown us. And this leads me to the second truth I want to share with you this morning. It is the practical reality of what a life that loves God and loves neighbor looks like. The future of our church family is really rooted in every one of us seeing our lives as a platform to love others like Jesus first loved us. His first love for us, he loved us before we loved him, is meant to be shown to others. We are meant to even love others before they love us or our Father in heaven. That's actually just a very fancy way of talking about evangelism, how we share the faith. And to bring a clarity to this, a crystal clarity, I want to revisit a, the BLESS acronym. I shared this with you a couple of years ago, and I probably should share it more often. But I, I want to give us a, a really practical roadmap for what it means to have a life that is engaged in, in loving neighbor. Because the BLESS acronym, which we'll unpack here in a moment, is where the rubber meets the road when it comes to identifying whether or not you have personally experienced God's love and have learned to love your neighbor wherever your neighbor is, in light of it. And so before we jump into this, I want to issue a, a thoughtful challenge to everyone sitting in this room. Some of you have been with us here for seven years, and you were maybe here on the Sunday I shared this. Maybe not. I don't know. We have, I'm sure, both, both parties of people in the room here right now. Some that have heard this and some have not. If this is something you've heard, then, and maybe you even took a card two years ago, which I'll instruct you to grab here in a moment. Ask yourself this. If you've heard this before, the question for you becomes, as we revisit it, have, are, you, are you living this? If this is the first time you've thought of this since that moment, this is a good refresher. And if you've never heard this before, please ask yourself if this is something you'd be willing to commit to. Because it is very important that those who consider themselves disciples in God's church, and in particular this church, remember the way this happens. 2,000 years ago, Jesus predicts and promises he's going to make disciples of the nations through us, through us. And the health of his church, of his people, is explicitly connected to God's people genuinely experiencing and compassionately sharing his love with others. And so for the remainder of this talk, we speak about how God desires us to go about this work by looking at something very practical. It's a way to live the magnificent love of God out in your life. In your seats, there are connection cards there, which you can fill out to let us know who you are, if you have questions in our church or about our church, if you have prayer requests, there's a tool packet in your cup holder. And part of that tool packet this morning is a bless card. You can grab this now and follow along with me. It'll also be behind me. The bless card is an acronym that reminds us about a very important life rhythm. It gives us a roadmap for how we can love God and serve our neighbors well. And I want you to take this card with you this morning as you leave. Now, the command to bless people was first given to God by Abram way back in Genesis 12. As you leave this morning, you're going to be handed this verse so that you can take that card, this love that we're speaking about for God, and that teaching, and see the cohesion between the three. Super important. As we look at this, I want to be clear about two things. This is a roadmap, and roadmaps simply mean, you know, if, if you think about putting something in your GPS, right, you might start 
you know, your GPS in Port Orange. And I don't know, you want to drive to Georgia or something, and you, you put Atlanta, Georgia at the end destination. That's the two waypoints of your trip, right? But the real fun of the trip is sort of what happens in between those two destinations. A roadmap is just that. You might pull off and see something you never thought of seeing before. You might see an exit to go someplace that was not on your trip, but you pause the, you pause the destination, if you will, to go explore something. This is the same idea here. These are waypoints. In between the waypoints is your life and the life of the people that are around you. And so this is intended to give you a pathway that will afford you the opportunity to serve and bless people. But it will not necessarily give you the particular details on how to do it. When you leave here, this card is not going to say, here, there's a guy in Panera who needs a cup of coffee. Go buy him one. It won't tell you that. You're going to have to be sensitive to the way God works. But you will not be sensitive to the way God works if you don't have a grid in your mind to understand the way God is desiring to work through blessing people. The specifics of what blessing and caring for people in your life look like are dependent on how the Spirit leads you and the opportunities that God sets before you. So that's the first thing I want to share with you. And the second is just, it's a matter of integrity. And that is sharing with you that this is an acronym that is not my acronym. The, the idea is very rooted in Scripture, but this was written, and there are multiple tools like it. I think this is the best one out there. It was written by a pastor in Chicago named Dave Ferguson. So I don't want you to think I've made this up, although I will elaborate on it in great detail. The, the authorship, if you will, of this is not mine, it's his. And so I don't want to take credit for something that's not mine, but I do want to kind of walk through this. <clears throat> so let's talk about these five waypoints. The first is to begin by praying for God to open your eyes to the needs of people around you. If you've experienced the love of God and you want to know how to help others experience the love of God, I'm telling you, you have to begin with praying. And I say this anytime we talk about a work of God. It always begins with praying. In Scripture, it's undeniable. Nothing happens in God's kingdom without prayer. Jesus himself, Jesus himself, does nothing without first praying to his Father. He is constantly in prayer throughout his life. If you look at the most significant elements of his ministry, before he selects his disciples, he's in prayer. In the upper room, he's praying. Before he goes to the cross, he's praying. He is praying all the time about the things God wants to do in the world through him. And there's a lesson in that for us. It's a pretty simple one. If Jesus is praying about loving and serving others, if Jesus is praying regularly about the work of his Father in heaven, then we should be too. So if you desire to have for the first time or to reclaim your first love in your own life, you have to know that things of God can never be fabricated. You cannot fabricate commitment. You cannot fabricate love, not Christ-centered love anyways. That stuff has to be birthed in you by God. Thus, the fact that Scripture teaches us we're dead in our trespasses. There is an awakening that happens in our souls. If you want to love like Jesus, the best thing to do is ask Jesus to help you love like him. Much like his righteousness, let him put his love in you. You've got to ask God for a burden to love him and other people. You've got to ask God to identify a particular people or person or place in your life, in your sphere of influence, and you all have one of those. I promise you there is more to do than you have time to do. That's just the way life is. But if you believe that to the point where it becomes a cop-out, you will never do anything for the Lord in heaven. What you've got to do is ask your Father in heaven to prioritize what it is he wants you to do. Where is it that he wants you to go? Whom is it that he wants you to bless? Ask him. Ask God to make you specifically aware of the needs of people he has purposely put in your life. And as he opens your eyes, please know, your commitment to love others will only be as strong as your love for God and passion to pray for them. Sometimes serving others is hard, right? Sometimes we are the hard case 
others serve us. I'm not, I'm not farming out hardness. I'm just saying serving people can be very difficult. We can be difficult and others can be difficult. So you have got to pray for the grace and the passion and the love and the fervor of your Father in heaven. After God puts those people in your heart, and I want to make you a promise, if you start praying this, he's going to put people in your heart. You have to make sure that you notate that somewhere, and that's why you've been given a blessed card. On the back of that card are, are lines for you to just notate the way God speaks to you. Stick it in your wallet, in your purse, in your back pocket. Transpose it into your phone, whatever you do. When God reveals something to you, whether that is through personal devotional time, the, the loving voice of a friend, or directly to you as you're praying for this, notate it and continue to pray for that name or that person or that place. Then you take step two. Once something is identified, you listen to what the people in your life are saying. I want to reference the same professor I mentioned to you earlier who had us write 10-page papers. He also said something that was incredibly influential in my life regarding evangelism and the way we speak to people. He said that one of the problems with Christianity in America for the last 50 years, especially when it comes to sort of how we're trying to talk about our faith, is that Christians, and if you grew up in a church world, you probably can affirm this. I did not have a very churched upbringing, but I can tell you when I first became a Christian, this is the way that I was taught. When we were, when we were taught about how to share Jesus with people or how to, how to you know, make God's name famous, we were told to do a lot of talking. I was literally handed grids, like papers of stuff to say. You, I was given like a, essentially a proposal to share with somebody. And what happened is, is it caused me to do lots of talking and a very little bit of listening. Now, there is a time to do some talking in the Christian faith. I'm not trying to overcorrect you. What I am saying, though, is that it's been very common, and this is sort of not just a Christian thing. I think this can be very common in general dialogue. Very common to have one-way conversations with people. You hear this a lot in the political debate. When you talk about the political forum and the tension that exists between the Republican or Democratic Party, I'm not endorsing either one of them. I'm just saying what's happening, if you listen to pundits, is they're saying there's an awful lot of yelling but not a lot of listening going on. And that's why we have some incredibly challenging problems in our nation that are left unaddressed because everybody's arguing. Nobody's listening. You're going to get the same issue here if this is how we approach proclaiming the most magnificent love of the world to the world. I would highly recommend that we make listening part of our palette of tools that we use. A better way to engage people is to do so like Jesus did. And when I say like Jesus did, what I mean is Jesus is not afraid to share the truth of God. This is the overcorrection we see in today's world. Maybe 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago, we were trained to do a lot of talking and no listening. Now what's happened is, is there's a lot of listening and maybe not as much talking. Jesus is never afraid to share truth, but he never does it in flippant ways. He never does it in irrational ways. He is engaged. He is knowing people. And he is talking to people. And it is out of that dialogue, questions, Q&A, that he begins to speak the truth of God into people's lives. He is listening and he is connecting with people where they are at, genuinely caring about them. And he speaks the truth unashamedly, but he's always doing it with a heavy measure of patience and grace. That seems to be his MO. It is undeniable. Jesus makes time to listen to the needs and the hurts of people. Most of the stories in the New Testament of him engaging people are on the heels of this. The woman at the well is the best example, in my opinion, of this in the New Testament. Even the Pharisees, he's having a conversation with them. These people do not care for him, but he is talking to them. He has listened to their question, and he is now addressing it. He didn't come with the grid. He came responding. And because of that, he's able to do something that is incredibly important. He can take a truth of the heavens, a, a gospel truth, in general, 
God is king. Love God. And he can apply a truth in general to a person's heart in particular. That is the benefit of listening. We can let God direct our words and our steps so that we can respond to where a person is really at and not assume where they're at. In doing so, we get something called clarity. Clarity allows us to engage people more deeply. It allows us to bless them by really figuring out where the needs of their hearts are and applying Jesus to them. So you must pray to God and you must listen to your neighbor. And here is going to be the hardest of the, th- of the, of the five uh, waypoints I want to share with you. And anytime I teach this, I teach this idea. You have to take time to eat with the people God puts in your life. So think about this. You pray about something. God shows you somebody. God gives you clarity in how to minister and care for somebody. And at this point, you have a really challenging decision to make. In the blessed life rhythm, this is probably, at least in my opinion in our culture today, the hardest step to accomplish because it, qu- it requires us to slow down. It requires us to make personal time for people. When I say eat with somebody, I don't necessarily mean physically have a meal with them, although that's really important. Uh, what I have found is over the years that meals change the dynamic of relationships, especially those of you that eat in your community groups. Something is different. When you have a supper together and then you study the word and talk about life, it changes things. The, the supper table is a common ground that creates a relational space, much like our families, that is unrivaled. But I will tell you, if you've ever tried to have supper just with your family, I've got a wife and three kids, and we're all like popping out the iPhones. Like my seven-year-old is like, I can't be there on Tuesday. I got a thing up the street. That's how life is right now, right? What I'm telling you is you have got to make space for this. It's got to be a priority. Even if it's 30 minutes or 40 minutes or just an hour, it's got to become a priority. I'm not saying quit your jobs and eat food. I'm saying make a space in your life, even if it is in your workplace, in your school, at your career, on your high school campus, wherever it is. Most of us today deeply believe our time is at a premium. And for many of us it is. But I'm telling you, the greatest premium you can place on your time is to let God use your life through your time. So I just want to say there is no easy fix for this. There just isn't. Inviting somebody into your life takes time. And I'm not even talking about an abusive time relationship. Just to engage people outside of your normal rhythm has got to become a priority. And some people will just not be willing to make that sacrifice in that area. If that's you, then you can pretty much drop everything else I'm going to say this morning. But I would encourage you, if this is you, to think about what it would mean to make this a priority in your life. I promise you, if you do not make time for people without Christ, somewhere in your life, if you don't make a time for people in your life with Christ, by having them over for supper, meeting them at a restaurant, grabbing a cup of coffee, you're going to have a really hard time loving God and blessing people. And here's why. Let's just go right back to Jesus. In the Bible, we regularly see him eating with people. He is eating with his disciples. He is spending time with the sinners. He's getting yelled at for hanging out with the tax collectors. He makes space for a guy named Zacchaeus. I want you to think about communion, which we will celebrate next week. The main way Jesus tells us to remember what he has done for us is what? It is through a supper table. The communion table, which we put right here, that is an abbreviated version of the supper he shared with his disciples. The foundation of how we remember Jesus was built around a meal. This one practice of spending meaningful quality time with someone whom God leads to you in your life by your prayers, through his word, it gives you an unrivaled opportunity to do what Jesus said. Because Jesus shared meals with people. And, and every, every time he is making space for people, whatever that looks like, casual acquaintances, hard conversations, objection, disbelief, tends to turn into something deeper. They become friendships that result in people taking steps for Christ. 
his space that he makes for people becomes an honor for people to learn how to love God. And if you think about it, his space is also an example of him loving people. So take the time to slow down. Ask God to frame your priorities and ask if loving your neighbor is one of them. It's an integral step in learning to lead a life that cares for the people. And I'll say one last thing here. Seldom does it require you to make more space. Seldom. It just typically requires us to be, to be more gospel efficient in the space we already have. So wherever you are, ask what it would mean to use your life for a platform for the gospel. Don't say, I've got to find 10 more hours in my week. Maybe that's the case. Seldom I find it is. Intentionality in what we're already doing. Begin by praying, listen, eat, and then serve. Here is sort of where we move from the head and the heart now to the hands. Serve those that God gives you. Serve those people you're spending time with when the chance is given to you. I'm going to be brief here, but don't take my, bre- my brevity for a lack of care or emphasis. The fourth practice is a logical step in this acronym. When you're praying, listening, and spending time with people, God is going to show you what's going on in their lives. Sometimes they might come straight out and say it. When that happens, you have a wonderful opportunity to serve others like Jesus did. In the first year of restoration, I counseled a young man. He, he's no longer here. He lives in another state. Um, but he was working at Chipotle up the road. And it was a funny story because for months, he kept telling me that he felt like God was telling him to talk to this guy that he worked with about Jesus. This is a true story. And eventually what happened is I would check in with him regularly to find out what was going on with this guy. Because he's like eight hours a day behind a food line with them, spending time with them. And one Sunday after church, I grabbed him and I said, hey, how's it going with this guy? And he said, something interesting happened this week. This is months now into the conversation. He said, he actually walked up to me and said, I actually think you're a Christian and I hear you like beating around the bush. Can you tell me what you believe about Jesus? The guy who didn't believe in Jesus grabbed the guy who did believe in Jesus and said, can you stop beating around the bush and tell me about Jesus right now? And I said, so how'd that go? And he said, well, I told him about Jesus. I said, great. But I think in the future, what we want to have happen is like, we're tuned in enough to God and we have enough courage that when those opportunities present themselves, when the need and the opportunity to serve is there, that we seize it. It was a good learning lesson there. And I say that with a ton of grace because we've all had those stories, right? We all have those spaces in our life. There's no judgment there. It's just a matter of him recognizing like, God got it done even when I was not ready to get it done. Mark 10.10. Jesus comes to serve people, not to be served. So as God makes these needs clear in your life, just, just oblige them. And they can, be, they can be so substantial, meaning like you will counsel the heart of a person who is in deep grief or crisis. It can be that serious. And sometimes it can be just lending a shoulder to somebody who needs to cry, watching their kids when there's an opportunity, painting a bedroom, hauling off debris, whatever it is, just serve and watch what God does. And lastly, I will say this. Share your faith story. Don't Chipotle it. Don't get to the place where the unbeliever shares a faith story with him or herself. Get to the place where you are sensitive enough to God that you can actually take that opportunity, that you can get to the truth, that your love leads people to the truth. Contrary to popular belief, sharing your faith is not as hard as we've all been led to believe. I actually think that in some circles of North American Christianity, we've created a victimization culture here, meaning we have painted a picture that the world is so hard and so terrible and so against us, and there are certainly places in the world and in this country where that is true. What I'm saying, though, is that we need to be mindful to not apply that logic to everybody. In fact, much like serving your neighbor, when you are praying, listening, and eating with people, what you will likely see is an increased opportunity to share your faith story with people. Because at this point in the relationship, I've said this a lot, anytime we talk about evangelism, this is what people that care about each other do. When you have a friend... um, 
and that person cares about you and you care about them, they're going to talk to you about stuff. It's, it's hilarious. Uh, I don't know why this is the case, but anytime that this has happened, no exaggeration, three times this morning before worship began. I'm a huge Yankee fan. You guys know that I grew up in Brooklyn. And three people today on the way into worship basically ribbed me about how the Yankees got spanked by the Cleveland Indians this weekend, right? So some of you are clapping. Into utter darkness may your soul go. <laughs> right. <laughs> right? That's what happened. It's, it's a colloquial joke, cause we, and we have some fa- people here that love the Red Sox, but that's sort of a great example of what I'm saying here, right? When you are friends with people and you care about stuff, you start to know people, and you make jokes, and you hang out, and you goof off, and it's frustrating to watch the Yankees lose, but it's also endearing to my soul to be made fun of in that way. Yet what you do. With people you care about, you talk to them about things that matter, and I think it's the same principle when we talk about sharing faith. And now you're saying, that sounds good, Anthony, but uh, I don't even know how to share my faith. I, I, I mean, like, there's so many cosmic questions. How do I share my faith? We can address those questions, I promise. But I would just give you a very simple formula here. The best way for you to begin sharing your faith, and the one that is going to probably matter most to the people in your life right now, is an easy one. You can tell them what your life was like before you knew Jesus. You can share with them what happened since you've known him. Some of the ways his goodness and his love and his grace has worked in your life. And then you can just let them ask questions about that. You'd be surprised what you can answer when you dwell on the fact that you had a time in your life without Christ and you have an experience with him now. People are intrigued by that. Yeah, there's a lot of theological questions and philosophical questions. And I promise you, we can help you answer those. But I would take a guess that the majority of the questions people are first going to ask you are going to revolve around you when you're in a relationship with them. So let it begin there. And recognize you can never have all the answers. That's how it is. Sometimes you say, I got to look that up or I got to ask somebody about this. That's same when you ask people questions about their life. They don't necessarily have every answer. But a real friendship is not based on you having every answer. It's actually based on the fact that you care to figure out the answers together. So as you try to lead this life, as you try to bless others, I guess the point I want to make here as you share your story is that please know you don't do it alone. If you stumble across something you don't know how to handle, if you talk to somebody that you, you know, Maybe they are a very hard-nosed person and they've got questions you can't deal with. Know that your journey in faith is part of a larger family, the one we're celebrating seven years today. God and his love for you and your love for others is not meant to just be a you and him thing. It's an us thing. And I would like to encourage you to remember that. You have a family to fall back on when you come across situations that you don't know how to handle. Or maybe you have questions just about this. We're here to help you figure that out. How to, maybe you say, I don't even know how to pray. We can help you with that. So as we look forward to year seven at restoration, as we think about what it means to love God and to bless our neighbors, I want to ask you all to pray with me that God would keep writing the love of his gospel on our hearts, that he would use his love in our lives in such a way that we would truly bless others, that he would deepen the roots we have planted in our community, and we have great roots, formally and informally. The, the best thing that I have heard from many of you over these past weeks and I've heard it from many of you, is how you've had opportunities to care for your neighbors, both literally the ones next door and the ones that are in your natural spheres of influence. Post-storm, you've been able to serve people. That's encouraging. And that's an evidence of the fact that we're not at Revelation 2. We're in Matthew 22. But we just want to make sure that we, we build a, a bigger foundation. We continue to add to the foundation of loving God and loving neighbor. We want to pray for God to give us wisdom and how we love and where we love. And I want to say, truly, I mean this, the last thing I want to leave you, you with this morning is if you're here today and you've, you've yet to love Jesus like we're speaking of, maybe you're here saying, man, that blessed thing sounded great. Like, how does that work in my life? 
please know the reason we started this church is so that that question could be answered in your heart. God has loved you first. You will never love others in the name of Jesus until you have experienced the love of Jesus. We started this church for that reason. And God has been faithful to us to see men and women know Jesus, be baptized in his name, and serve him, both in this community and in communities all around this country, and even a handful overseas. So make this the day, if you've never been blessed by God, make this the day that you experience his grace personally. And as we close, I hope you know just how much my family cares for you, uh, that has been perceived and experienced in, in very deep and real ways through very challenging seasons of our life. It is my prayer that our partnership together in the gospel, that God would continue to use that, that our love for him would shape a deep and profound love for each other that continues to move God's kingdom forward in the places he sends us as a church and as individuals. So cheers, and may we have many more years together. Pray with me, or salute is the way we say it in Italian. <laughs> Father in heaven, thank you for this day. Thank you for a celebration. And as we begin to wrap up this morning and move into a response time, I just pray, God, you would fix the affections of our hearts on you this morning. Make this time of response be the literal outpouring of what we have discussed. Show us how to love you more deeply. Show us, God, how you love us in deep and significant ways. May we leave here this morning on fire, indwelled by the passion of your Holy Spirit, filled with the love and the truth and the grace of your Son. May we leave here with you, God, being the first love of our lives. And it is in your name, in your son's name, we pray this this morning. Amen.